everywhere I'm addicted to the thrill uh -huh. It's a dangerous love everyone welcome back to another episode of hot take time machine today is thursday march 4th and theo we've got a lot on tap for the listeners don't we hell yeah brother we do it's a big weekend we got another enormous ufc slate coming up here it's ufc 259 and we are so hyped to welcome back to the show our resident ufc analyst sir mike herman mike how are we doing today Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's 48 hours till fight night. Yes, I'm real is. excited. I'm counting down. Well, let's get it right into it then. Why don't we to kind of brief the viewers a little bit? Uh, so we've got an enormous card here for you guys this weekend. UFC 259. Of course, the headliner, what everyone's looking forward to seeing is Jan Blahowitz versus the legendary Israel Adesanya. Adesanya coming into this matchup with a spotless 20-0 record, already successfully <laughs> defending his title twice in the octagon past couple years. But guys, we've got a couple enormously appealing, very exciting undercard matchups here, and we're going to get right into it for you. I'm going to tee up some of these for you guys and kind of hear what your uh, roundtable opinions are, some things to be looking toward in these and let's just start it right off, guys. Uh, the Bantamweight title fight, we got Piotr Jan against Aljamain Sterling. Big matchup. Piotr Jan, 7-0 since joining UFC in 2018. Aljamain Sterling, three years older and perhaps a little bit more of a physical advantage. But uh, I'm really curious what you guys are looking toward in this uh, particular undercard. I mean, you know, right to the action. We're focused on gold here at Hot Take. You know, this is the first of three title fights in the night. We got Piotr Jan versus Aljamain Sterling for the bantamweight belt. You know, while these might be lighter guys, these are no small fries. You know, bantamweight has been one of the most electric divisions in the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. It's nonstop action when you get to that size. You know, it's a beautiful mix of of cardio, tenacity, and and rude boy power. Um, I'm really excited for Saturday night's fight. You know, the first of the three title fights on the card. Yep. Um, Breaking this down from a numerical standpoint, if I'm, you know, if I'm a Piotr Jan fan, I'm really happy that, you know, Piotr's got about an 87% takedown defense average over his um, seven fights in the UFC. Mm -hmm. He's also got a 53% takedown accuracy. So this man's, you know, he, he's no slouch when it comes to the wrestling game, which is where Aljamain really, you know, takes his, his uh, briefcase to the bank. Um, you know, recently he's coming off of a really impressive win against uh, a veteran in the company over Jose Aldo. You know, mm -hmm. to to put it bluntly, he he beat the brakes off that man, and it was a late <laughs> stoppage. You know, people were not happy with the refs that night. Um, on the flip side, if I'm Aljamain Sterling fan, 
you know, I'm really gassed about this four inch reach advantage. I'm really happy about the striking defense numbers that he puts up and, you know, uh, 1.94 strikes absorbed per minute. It's pretty good. You know, it sounds a little interesting, but when you, you know, crunch the numbers and look into it, it's pretty good. And he's got eight wins via submission. So this man has right. a very clear path to victory. He's on a five fight win streak. You know, he hasn't lost since December of 2017. And in his last win, he just backpacked, choked out promptly Corey Sanhagen, who is, you know, at, at this moment in time, another, you know, bantamweight title contender, given what he just did to Frankie Edgar. If you haven't seen that, I highly recommend you go to YouTube <laughs> and check that out. Um, some interesting stats, you know, when you look at them both is that they have roughly the same average fight time. And they have roughly similar takedown attempt stats. So it's going to be interesting to kind of see like who shoots first in this matchup. If anyone's going to shoot, mm -hmm. I mean, if anyone's going to shoot, it's going to be Aljamain Sterling, given of he's course. got a wrestling credential for days, but you know, it's people, people don't often give Piotr Jan the, the wrestling credit that I feel like he's due in the UFC, given that, you know, he's a, he's a master of sport and boxing in Russia, which is essentially one of the highest honorary titles you can get in the country. Mm -hmm. um, he might, I, I believe he's an Olympian or, you know, he he's trained with Olympians. He, he, he really, you know, he sucks the soul out you with his pressure and his boxing. What I think goes down eventually on Saturday night, if you look at their resumes, you know, and while Vegas has this, this is a, as a pick em fight, I mm -hmm. think, I think if you really, you know, take the time to sit down and look at their last five fights, Aljamain Sterling's performances, you know, the caliber of competition that he's faced is certainly higher than that of Piotr Jan's. Um, that being said, you know, Piotr Jan is dispatching of these people in quick and efficient fashion. So, you know, it's, it's certainly not uh, a through and through knock on the people he's beaten. I just think the people that Aljamain Sterling has beaten in his path to get here have certainly been more legitimate fights than Piotr Jan's. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I like that you just, you mentioned obviously Aljamain Sterling's wrestling background and the submissions though, like the Sanhagen fight specifically, I think was just so telling for me, you know, it's a first round submission. I think it was a rear naked choke, uh, that, I mean, that is a really impressive result against a really talented opponent. Or, I would argue more talented than Piotr Jan. Of course, that's up for debate. I mean, but, you, you know, I would say that Sandhagen is not a guy to be trifled with. And, you know, when you look at Sterling, I mean, he is so confident in his ability to just finish takedowns. I mean, he tweeted, I just need one takedown, father's plan, which is obviously a shout out to Khabib. And, and, you know, all of just his greatness and his legacy. But I, I'm kind of, you know, I believe Sterling. I think that if he can get Piotr Jan in any sort of vulnerable position, he's going to have a very good shot to take this fight that, like you said, Mike, Vegas is very much billing as a pick -em fight. That said, on the flip side, you have to look with Jan at his footwork. You know, obviously he's very impressive, you know, with the boxing aspect too. Of course, his takedown defense is fairly effective, but I think a lot of that comes with his great footwork and that's going to make it more difficult for Sterling. So he's really going to have to pick and choose his spots and not get a little, you know, overly eager, if you will, because if he does, he could end up getting knocked the hell out and that would not be good. But I'm, I'm really excited for this fight. I think both guys have a lot to prove 
You know, there's a lot. I mean, both have five plus win streaks uh, in the UFC. Of course, Piotr Jan has not lost since signing with UFC in 2018. Uh, this, I mean, this is a very underrated fight that I think is going to be, you know, fireworks all over the place. I mean, it's a title fight for a reason. And and like you said, the one thing that you let off with about the bantamweight that I, I really agree with, and I think a lot more people should take to heart too, is the fact that even though these guys are not big, they pack a punch. And I think we're going to see that uh, in the third to last fight on Saturday night. And just to piggyback off that, I mean, I think the reason that Vegas has this so even is that if you have two things in combat sports, really stand a chance to you know to win that night courage and knockout power and those are two things that Piotr Jan does not yeah like. definitely not <laughs> yeah I think you know courage uh, is at least for me it'd take a lot of fucking stones to hop in there in the ring with uh Alderman Sterling I think you know before we flip to the next fight one thing I do want to mention you know I you you briefly touched on this Michael but uh, Jan has a win on the board against Jose Aldo. And for a casual like me, you know, that's significant. And Jose Aldo was a guy who was really running the sport at least a few years ago. So really looking forward to this one. Um, cool to kind of oh, see. Before we move but. quickly, shout out to Aljamain Sterling because he went to Morrisville State where if you have anything to do with Colgate, you know all about the corral <laughs> in that area in upstate New York. So shout out to him. It's a little added bonus for me and why I'll be rooting for him. But before we move on initially, uh, you want to just get some picks out, some predictions maybe for this fight. Just, I mean, Mike, you want to go first and just who you think is going to win, not even necessarily which round. I, I certainly, I, I have a, you know, I love the corral. I love Morrisville. Uh, <laughs> I want Aljamain Sterling to win. <laughs> I I think, you know, this fight is no one, you know, I don't think this fight, we're really going to know how it's going to go until maybe the third, the fourth round. I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of downloading. I think there's going to be a lot of game plan adjusting on the fly. I think this fight's going to be really competitive. I think Aljamain Sterling has more weapons. And that'll allow him to maybe, you know, make different approaches during the fight. And that'll give him more paths to victory than I think Piotr Jan has. So I'm going to go with Aljamain Sterling. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you there. I mean, I think that Aljamain Sterling just his takedown ability, you know, also you look at just his career. I mean, he's 19 and three, two of those three losses came via split decision. I mean, this is, he's a real deal right here. And, you know, I, I think he's got what it takes to finally put an end to Piotr Jan's very impressive start with the UFC, not to take anything away from Jan because he's still got a bright future ahead of him, I think, but Aljamain Sterling, I think just has enough to do it. So I'll go with Sterling as well. All right. Lock that shit in. Let's move on to the next fight. Uh, this is an, another big billing. I mean, I, I'm not sure if people who are unfamiliar with UFC really realize just the magnitude of this women's bout that we've got here as the uh, as the second undercard. Amanda Nunes versus Megan Anderson for the women's featherweight title. Uh, Amanda Nunes, I mean, people got to realize she's a goaded, goaded UFC athlete. She's won 11 mm -hmm. fights in a row. First round finishes against... Holm, Cyborg, Misha Tate, Ronda Rousey. Nunez got to put some respect on her name. I mean, her money line is set at minus 1,100 right now. Jesus Christ. So, guys, I'm really curious, you know, what your analysis of is of this fight because 
the books of Gata is a bit of a lopsided one. Yeah, you know, that, I mean, it makes perfect sense. When you're talking about somebody like Amanda Nunes, I like what you brought up, Theo. She is the GOAT, at least in my in my opinion, and I think in a lot of MMA fans' opinion. She's the GOAT when it comes to female MMA fighting, and especially the UFC. You know, she's boasts a 20-4 record. She's won 11 fights a row in, in a row, including first-round finishes against Holly Holm, Chris Cyborg, Maisha Tate, Ronda Rousey. I she deserves this minus 1200 in that ballpark those odds she deserves that for a reason she is simply a force to be reckoned with us uh when we were talking about it a couple days ago about this fight uh, mike and i were he mentioned that something i completely forgot she's got that mom strength now too which is just an added bonus to an already incredible female fighter so not taking anything away from megan anderson necessarily because she, you know, she's still a former Invicta champ. Uh, she signed with the UFC, and has, since then, she's three and two, and her losses are to Holman, Felicia Spencer, both of whom, though, have lost to Amanda Nunes within the last two years. I mean, nothing against her. She's a great fighter. She's still up and coming a bit, but at this point, Amanda Nunes, I just think it is impossible to pick against her or even try to make a case for it because she is about as dominant in her respective sport as any athlete on the planet right now. Will the real MMA fans please stand up? <laughs> because if so, then you know Amanda Nunes deserves the number one spot in the pound-for-pound pound rankings, regardless wow. of gender. She's the only double champ in UFC history to have multiple title defenses yep. in both of her weight classes. Yep. Daniel Cormier couldn't do it. Conor McGregor couldn't do it. Henry wow. Cejudo couldn't do it. No one, No one is doing it. Except Amanda Nunez. The lioness comes for blood and money. She is not to be trifled with. I mean, you know, I, I, I could try to make the case for Megan Anderson. I just think No, you can't. You know, Let's be real. The the, <laughs> the one thing that you 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 know that that interests me in this fight, going back to what I was saying earlier, if you've got knockout power and you've got balls, you've got courage. You stand a chance. You know, Megan Anderson has a four-inch height advantage and a three-inch reach advantage. If if there's anyone who could stand outside and really throw a one-two down the pipe that might clip Amanda Nunes, I think Megan Anderson might be the person to do it. Do I think she will? No, I don't. Because Amanda Nunes handedly beat Felicia Spencer. She yeah. she five she five owed her. And she knocked Holly Holm out via a head kick. Mm -hmm. Both those women hold wins over Megan Anderson. I just, I, I have a really hard time picking against someone who throws 4.43 significant strikes a minute, has 57% <laughs> striking defense and 84% takedown defense. The flip side for Anderson's numbers there, uh, 1.8 significant strikes per minute. Oof. 35% striking defense. That's not going to help against Amanda Nunes. No, it's not. I mean, those are pretty staggering discrepancies. And <laughs> again, you know, we're like, it's nothing against Megan Anderson because you're going up against like, this is literally the toughest opponent she could possibly ask for. You got to give her credit even just for, you know, 
having the balls to sign on to this. Like, this is a tall order. And at this point, you know, of course, I could end up being wrong and looking like an idiot, but it's really just going to be important for Megan Anderson to try to have a decent showing. You know, if she can get past the first round, unlike a lot of these other great female fighters that I mentioned earlier, that'll be really impressive in and of itself. So while I do really like Nunes in this fight and will ultimately would ultimately ride with her, even with those brutally, you know, <laughs> invaluable odds, I mean, minus 1200 is you're not making any money there. I still think it'll be an interesting fight just to see how Anderson fares against the greatest female fighter of all time. And uh, just, you know, again, shout out and, and all blessings to uh, Amanda Nunez and Nina Asroff's newborn daughter, Reagan. Um, she's a beautiful baby girl, and she's got two badass moms. Her moms yeah, will beat does. the shit out of you. Her moms will beat <laughs> the shit out of you. They're both <laughs> UFC fighters. Do not play with them. No. No, she's scary, man. I mean, I like – I. Credit to Megan Anderson just for even doing this because I'd be shitting bricks with even the concept of it, even as another UFC fighter in her own right. Like, oh, my God almighty. Just seeing that name across the the, the octagon is like, Jesus. If I were to make uh, a bet on this fight, I would really see what props, you know, what specific things Vegas offers me. There's any money to be made on over under, maybe, you know, Amanda, you know, in a certain round. I, I think it'll be early if you're going to pick one of those rounds. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I just think, you know, get get creative with it. Watch some fights, see, you know, do a little do a little homework. See if you uh, see if you can pick up on any tendencies and, you know, just pick Mandy to the bank. Yeah, I mean, could not agree more. <laughs> Got to ride Amanda Nunes all the way in this one. It's just how could you not? Whatever you're going to do, however you're going to do it, it's got to be Nunes. Amanda to the moon. One interesting thing I did want to mention, though, about this particular bout before we move on to the next one is you when you look at Megan Anderson's record, right? She's 11-4. You know, that that's that's pretty good. Uh, one of those wins actually came against Kat Zingano, right? And, you know, very few people we'll pick up on what that name means, but Kat Zingano was the last person to beat Amanda Nunes back in 2014. Yeah. So just kind of a interesting, uh, you know, degree of separation there between these two fighters. Still, I think, you know, Nunes has the decisive edge in this one. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, look, that was also in 2014, right, which was right. seven years ago. Amanda yeah. Nunes has not lost since then. I have full faith in her. But yeah, look, credit where credit is due. That's still an impressive victory for Anderson, no doubt. All right, boys. Got to give the people what they want. It is time to get into the octagon and review the main card fight of the evening. What everyone's looking forward to seeing Jan Blahowicz of Poland versus Israel Adesanya, the style bender himself from Nigeria. This is the light heavyweight title bout. Jan Blahowicz coming in with a 27 and 8 record, currently the light heavyweight champ. And then Israel Adesanya, the beast himself, coming in with a 20 and 0 record. He's moving up a weight class to try to become the double champion. Boys, I'm so excited to hear what you're kind of looking toward in this matchup. And Mike, why don't you kind of kick us off with your first uh, impressions? I mean, you know, seeking to put his name in another spot in the record books mm-hmm. uh, in an emphatic fashion. 
Israel Adesanya said, now is my time. I want to be a champ champ. He also, I think that, you know, this is a little bit of, hey, John Jones. Hey, John Jones. Oh, yeah. I got something right. that you want. <laughs> you know, July, Raiders Stadium, Las Vegas, 2021. Mm. Um, but that's, you know, that's a whole other podcast another time. I think this fight is is really, you know, the real winner here is the fan. We are oh, in yeah. for a real treat. I think, you know, to to pull back a little bit and to look at Israel Adesanya's last five fights. Fought. You got Kelvin Gastelum in there. You've got Yoel Romero in there. Yep. You've got Paolo Costa. Costa in there. Yeah. Those are all three pretty, you know, big, bullish, explosive strikers with wrestling credentials, you know, mm -hmm. some more than others. Um, this is kind of just another day at the office for Israel Adesanya, just in a new department, essentially, you know, um, yeah. Jan Blahovic being the, uh, you know, he's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, 17 out of his 27 wins come via finish. He's got five bonuses in the UFC. Eight of his last nine fights are wins. Three KOs in his last four fights. Damn. You know, Jan Blahovic is a brawler. And he's also got technical ability on the ground. You know, very similar to Yoel Romero in that sense. Yep. Um, and hopefully, you know, knock on all kinds of wood, Jan's going to come more to dance than Yoel did. Uh, if you're Israel Adesanya, you know, the the game plan is don't get caught because, you know, right. this is, you know, while this might not be a new concept, you know, I feel like there are new repercussions. You know, Israel, in, in a lot of these interviews that I've seen leading up to this fight, Israel's talking about how he's not trying to put on too much weight. He's not trying to, like, drastically change his body so that, you know, he knows how he's going to perform when he gets in there. I think that's smart. It makes sense to me. The flip side of that coin is that Jan Blahovich is going to weigh probably 25 more pounds than you. Yep. And he knows how to use those 25 pounds. Mm -hmm. And if those extra 25 pounds and Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt get on top of you, you know, you might feel a little bit of that legendary Polish power. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a scary prospect for Adesanya, you know, while he is the favorite and while I rightfully, you know, I think that makes sense given, you know, that Israel has shown there are levels to this game. And, and that he is really above, you know, even the cream of the crop when it comes to striking in the UFC. I don't think there's a better striker, you know, alive right now. Yeah, definitely. Um, that being said, Jan Blahovich has knockout power and Jan Blahovich has balls for days. Um, I think that this and I think that's the reason why the fans are the true winner in this fight. Because Jan's not going to, you know, even if he's down in the third, the fourth, the fifth round, and he's still conscious, he's not going to stop. You know, he, he is a yeah. battle-tested veteran who, who is fighting, you know, he, he recently acquired dad strength uh, in December <laughs> of, of 2020. You know, a lot uh, of parents fighting to, this weekend. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of parent-teacher, or I guess parent-children action this weekend. Yeah. That being said, I think... You know, the game plan for Adesanya, when you look at the numbers, 
Israel Adesanya is 106 in combat sports. Yep. That's across kickboxing, mixed martial arts, and boxing. Undefeated in mixed martial arts. 15 out of those 20 wins in MMA have come via KO or TKO. Mm-hmm. He's got a two-inch height and reach advantage. He averages 1.2 knockdowns per 15 minutes. <laughs> He's got 1.21 knockdowns per 15 minutes, 87% takedown defense, and a 65% striking defense. I mean, those are scary numbers. Those are numbers that spell, I'm going to be on my feet. I'm going to hit you. You are not going to hit me. You know, the some of the more interesting stats, I think, when you look at this, fight numerically is that they have a very similar um significant strike land rate you know while um while izzy tends to throw a significant strikes at a little bit of a higher clip um 4.1 versus jan's 3.4 they both land around 49 percent plus or minus one percent izzy being 50 jan being 48 Mm -hmm. um but for me you know at, at, at the end of this at the end of this story here, while it's a new weight class, it's it's still like very much the same story for Israel. You've got a big bull that's going to come in and try to knock your block off. Can you stab him enough times to to knock him out? Or is Jan going to land? Yeah, yeah. You know, I really liked what you sort of led off with <clears throat> talking about some of Izzy's past fights. I mean, I think he's got to, if he wants to be successful, because obviously, you know, moving up the weight classes is there are weight classes for a reason in fighting, you know, and, and it's not just like an easy thing, you know, to sort of like turn your nose up at. It. I mean, it's a big deal to move up a weight class, especially against the champion. That said, what you led off with talking about his previous fights, most notably, I mean, the last one against Costa and then also Romero. Like you said, you know, and it's true. Those guys are big bruisers that, you know, they, they had him in the power department just as Blahovich does. If they get him on the ground, you, you know, it's a whole different fight. And I think Izzy's got to approach this the same way he did those fights, just because, you know, like you said, you got to be calculated. You got to be tactical. And that's going to come with Izzy's bread and butter, with, which is what? Leg kicks, leg kicks, and more leg kicks. That's how you try to break Blahovich down a little bit. You know, don't don't take too many risks because that's when you're going to get your shit rocked. I mean, you know, we've seen it. Blahovich, he is a demon. You, you just look at the Dominic Reyes fight. Like, he is a powerful motherfucker, and he is not to be messed with. And so I think Izzy has to go in understanding that and understanding that he's got to be very calculated with his strikes to avoid taking, you know, large amounts of damage and actually getting hurt on any of these or trying to limit the amount of of hurt that he's, you know, sort of taking. And if he can do that, weather the storm and wait for his opportunity to sort of inflict that punishing blow that we've seen him do so many times, I think that's the real avenue for success for Adesanya. On the flip side, you know, I think with Jan, it's got to be just trying to get Izzy on the ground if possible you know, avoiding getting himself beat up too much. Like we saw with the Costa fight, you know, Costa came out all cocky. He was jumping around. And then by the start of the second round, his facial expression was different. His entire leg had welts up and down the side of his knee. You know, he was clearly just broken down and didn't have enough to even weather the storm much longer. I think Jan really has to try to avoid that if possible. And the biggest benefit for him in that regard is going to be the fact that this is his weight class, not at you know, He's got him in in just the size, even though he is a little bit shorter, 
by what is it two inches he's still like you said going to be 20 roughly 20 pounds heavier I mean that's going to play a definite factor and it's going to allow him to sort of expose his durability a little bit more against a guy who you know Adesanya is an incredible fighter one of my favorites and one of the best of all time but this is this is new somewhat uncharted territory for him and so what Jan has to do is just try to get Izzy out of his element, you know, don't let him do what he does best, which is wearing down opponents and then going in for the kill. And I think if he does that and, you know, does kind of what Izzy is going to do, but on the flip side and that he's going to be calculated with his really punishing left hand, then I think there's an avenue for him to win too. But one other thing I wanted to mention about this fight is, you know, you said it's going to be a fight for the fans. And I agree with that so much. I think Vegas actually is kind of disrespecting Blachowicz a little bit. Just because, and you know, we've seen the line actually come down a little bit, even over the last couple of days, and it will continue to between now and Saturday, just given the nature of, you know, last minute bets placed on Blahovich. But you got to remember, th- this is his weight class. Like, I can't stress that enough. Izzy's incredible. I love Adesanya so much, but this is Jan Blahovich's weight class to lose. And so... I, I just think that to make him an underdog, and at least it opened with him as such a large underdog, I think it's a little disrespectful. And, you know, that's bulletin board material. That's going to light a fire a little bit more. You know what? No, I don't want Adesanya coming in and taking my weight class from me. I want to assert my dominance. And so I just cannot express how excited I am for this fight. I think it's going to be potentially one of the best fights we have in 2021, even though it's only March. Of course, you know, there's still a lot to go, but I, it's just going to be an incredible fight. And I honestly, while I don't really know what the outcome is going to be, because both guys bring such different yet equally as dominant approaches to the table, I, you know, I want to ride with Izzy really, really badly just because I love him so much. But I think this honestly could be an absolute toss up. Like, I would not be shocked if either one of these guys comes out victorious or in what fashion. Well, Ethan, I think you mentioned just, an important point with the with the weight thing because I'm just going to kind of read a quote here from Israel Adesanya this week because I think what people need to realize is Adesanya is a champion at 185 pounds, right? He has not been tested at this significantly higher weight at 205 pounds, a weight that Blahowicz has been fighting in for, for years. And uh, one quote mm-hmm. that Adesanya had just kind of on his uh, strategy going into this uh, weigh-in on Friday is uh, it's the same thing to him. This is the quote, same thing. It's just silly to me when people go and decide to add more muscles to their frame than they're not used over the years working this game. He was joking, hey, he's not going to be ordering Uber Eats or, or desserts or anything to try to add pounds. So Adesanya isn't going hard for this uh, 205-pound <laughs> matchup um, You know that someone might expect going into this. He said uh, you know, he's aiming possibly more in the 195 to 198 range. Um, you know, Michael, just to, I'm kind of curious right. what you think uh, the weight is going to play. What kind of role that's going to be in this one? You know, Israel Adesanya is 106 in combat sports. You know, he knows what his body can do and what it is capable of better than any of us. Um, you know, he's been sparring, I imagine, with bigger dudes, you know, to compensate for the fact oh, that Jan's going to show up with, yeah. you know, a, a certain pound advantage on him. That being said, you know, Israel Adesanya's got an 87% um, takedown defense. He's got 65% striking defense. Israel Adesanya is capable of making some of the most elite strikers in the UFC look like deer in headlights. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's yeah, it so is. beautiful to watch. 
you know, I highly recommend if any of the listeners have ESPN plus that they watch um, the detailed breakdown by Daniel Cormier on Israel Adesanya. You're going to learn about framing. You're going to learn about all kinds of feints, you know, and then, you know, you watch the fight Saturday night, you'll see it. You'll see it. You'll see those little hip switches. You'll yep. see the arm. That's just a constant ruler measuring distance. You know, I think it's safe to say that Paolo Costa and Yo Romero showed up heavier than Israel Adesanya did for those two fights. No doubt. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, to bring it up again, that Yo Romero fight was a dud. Um, and that's not really Israel's fault. But the Paolo Costa fight was not a dud. He proved that, you know, he, he can he can slay the demon. He can, mm-hmm. you know, David can beat Goliath. I'm not sure how big of a 20 you know how big that 25 pounds is going to be until we see israel get hit or we see yan on top of israel right now i think you know for yan if he wants to maximize those 25 pounds you know he gets you know he he gets a little bit of added durability you would think so if you're going to get lit up by Israel Adesanya, which you kind of just have to assume is going to happen, you know, most people don't, (laughs) um, you know, you gotta, you gotta make those opportunities where you get in close count. You got, you know, you got to hit them to the body hard with hooks. You gotta, you know, maybe get an uppercut or two in there. You really got to make him pay when you come in and expose yourself and take risks yourself. You know, you really gotta, you, you can't, you have to capitalize on those risks. And obviously that's like a very you know clear path to victory for most fights. But I think that, mm-hmm. you know, in this fight, the avenues for Jan are a little <laughs> more limited. Now I think the other thing where those 25 pounds can come into play is in the clinch, you know, 87% takedown defense doesn't translate to, you know, I get out of the clinch very quickly, very easily without damage. Uh, Jan Blahovich is a master, you know, he's a, he's a blue, he's a Brazilian jujitsu black belt. You know, the clinch is essentially standing jujitsu with elbows. So if Jan can, if Jan can really get in the clinch and do some damage, I think he could really, you know, make this fight interesting. Yeah. You know, I agree with everything you said. I think it's just such uncharted territory for us as fans and also for both these fighters. I I just think we're in for a real treat and can't wait to see what happens. Now, before we wrap it up, I think it would only be fair to all of our listeners out there to give some predictions for this fight. You know, I mean, this is the top billing on this loaded card that we have for UFC 259. Mike, why don't you give me your prediction for this last one? What, who do you got and why? Israel really believes in himself. And I think that's that's eighty five percent of the battle when it comes to combat sports. Do you do you think you can go in there and win this fight? Because if you don't, then you shouldn't have signed, and you're probably not going to win on the given night. Um, I you know a lot of people probably sleep on Israel's ground game because we haven't seen it because he has that eighty seven percent takedown defense. Yeah. And, and his footwork is so good. And, and he's, he's such an elite mover. Um, but he recently got his purple belt. One that's one below black belt for all you casuals mm-hmm. out there. <laughs> um, you know, he, he, in a, in, in an interview with Ariel Hawani, he, he discussed his, his two most likely paths to victory. One, you know, the bread and butter, the, that beautiful 
you know, shot that wobbles him. Does you know, Jan does the chicken dance. Yeah. Good night. <laughs> the other one, I think, you know, he 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 wants to prove that, you know, don't take me to the ground because I'm not the guy. Um, I think there's a chance that Israel, you know, clips him with a knee if Jan decides to shoot or he clips him with an uppercut coming in and then we see a guillotine or we see, you know, a head and arm choke. I think, you know, I think if, if, if I'm betting on Saturday night on Israel Adesanya, definitely put some money on the knockout, the, the TKO, you know, the general Izzy win. I think a sneaky little bet on, you know, Israel via submission you might be very happy. You might be I'd sign happy. up for that. That's a two-parter, though, because if you just go for the submission, I don't think you're going to be happy. Right. I think you want to cover, you know, it's just like a little cherry on top. If it hits, it hits. If it doesn't, you, you still, you've still made your money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I got to agree with you. I like, this is probably a, at least 75% emotionally driven just because I love Izzy so much, but I can't pick against him. You know, he's 20, and know, he seems right now, like the most unbeatable male fighter there is just because who knows what the deal is with Khabib. But for right now, you know, it's Adesanya. I don't think anybody could really argue that. And I think just, you know, his mentality that you, I mean, you see it play out every time he fights, he just goes in, he's got so much confidence in his own ability. He knows that he can come at you in so many different ways that might even surprise his opponent. And, and ultimately, you know, he's never been stopped, at least in terms of UFC fighting and really not much in his entire career, you know, the 106 record that says a lot. So yeah, I'm going with Izzy here too. I just, even though I think that the line will come down a little bit, which could give some more value to late betters, I love Izzy in this one. You know, I think he's got a ton to prove to become a double champ would be incredibly impressive. And, and I, you know, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, I'm hoping and praying that we have an Adesanya finish. But like I said, I think it'll be a great fight regardless. And I could legitimately see either guy coming out, no questions asked. Well, one thing I'm definitely looking toward uh, in terms of an Adesanya dub is what that's going to do for his career in terms of the course that sets him on for the potential John Jones fight. You know, I think yeah, uh, as just someone who is an admitted casual of the sport, you know, even I know just the greatness and the reputation that John Jones brings to the sport. And, you know, if Adesanya can show that he can hang with the big dogs here in this uh, heavyweight, light heavyweight division, hey, maybe we'll even get this uh, Jones-Adesanya fight of the century at some point. Um, But of course, that's for farther down the line. Um, Just to wrap it here, Mike, uh, what are a couple other bouts on this card on Saturday you think the people should uh, pay attention to? I think, you know, the more the more time you sink into this card, the the higher the odds that you'll have a great night will be. You know, mm-hmm. I think there's a couple of stacked prelim fights. Um, notably, you've got, you know, former Bantamweight champion Dominic Cruz looking to get back on track against Casey Kenny. Yeah. But, you know, just to, you know, for the sake of time, the main card is electric. All five fights, you know, starting off, you've got. You've got Tiago Santos versus Alexander Rakic. Yeah. Do not blink. These <laughs> men are violent. These men are fast. These men do not like to spend more time in the ring than they need to. Oh, boy. I will be glued to the TV for that one. Make yes, sure that sir. you've gone to the bathroom. You got your beer. The popcorn's <laughs> nice and red. You got your proper 12. 
Yeah. <laughs> Sponsor, not sponsored. Um, and then right after that, you've got Islam Makashev versus Drew Dober. You know, is, Islam Makashev looking to keep that Dagestan legacy alive and well in the yes, UFC. Sir. You know, nonstop action, constant, constant pressure, constant violence. And Drew Dober is much of the same. So, you know, in a sense, this is an immovable object meets an unstoppable force. And I think this should be a firecracker of a fight. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, look, this is about as good of a UFC card as we could possibly ask for. I think everybody would agree with that. And, you know, I think from top to bottom, even the early prelims, you know, we're in for a real treat. So I can't wait for Saturday night. But for right now, all we can do is speculate. Thank you so much, Mike, for coming back on our resident MMA expert. You know, let's look forward to a great Saturday night. And then we've got some more fights coming up. I think Francis Ngannou is fighting uh, Stipe, right, in late March. So we'll be doing a breakdown of that too. And then whatever is in the foreseeable future, but for right now, let's hope for a great Saturday night. Mike, you want to say anything before we uh, transition over to some college basketball? Be safe, wear a mask, call your mom. I'll see you for Francis Stipe too. Let's go baby. Let's go. Thanks Mike. Appreciate taking the time. that'll do it for us talking about UFC obviously a great car that we're really excited for but you know we got to keep it diverse here in this podcast not just focusing on one sport let's move now to some college basketball obviously we're getting down into the heat of the regular season you know it's finishing up I believe by the end of this weekend and then we have the NCAA conference tournaments which in my opinion are slept on you know everybody always just points to March Madness and the actual NCAA tournament as being like the big ticket item, which of course it is. Everybody loves March Madness. Yeah. But the conference tournaments are great. Like I think that they're always so competitive. It's it's interesting to see teams play each other who have already played each other, you know, at least twice during the regular season. They've all I mean it's it's just a different dynamic that you don't necessarily get with the NCAA tournament itself. So let's start it off with maybe I mean, we'll probably look at just some of the top conferences, just, you know, teams that are or conferences that have a lot of teams that are ranked like the Big 12, the Big 10, the ACC. So let's just dive right into the Big 12 off the bat. You know, they have some of the best teams in the country. Obviously, you look at where they're ranked as of now. Baylor is number three, Kansas, number 13, West Virginia, number six, Oklahoma State, number 17, number 15, Texas, number 16, OU and number 18, Texas Tech. I mean, this is a stacked conference, I think more so than it's been maybe ever, at least in recent memory, you know? Yeah, if you look at this, just the standings, it's seven out of the 10 teams in the Big 12 Conference are in the top 25 currently. Just absolutely insane how loaded the Big 12 Conference is at this point. And it's wild because you look at the overall records of each of these teams, you know, you got Texas Tech, Oklahoma, Texas, Oklahoma State, and then the heavy hitters, West Virginia, Baylor, Kansas, most of their losses this season have come within the Big 12. So these teams have just been beaten up right. on each other all season long. Of course, you know, Baylor leading the way. They've been the powerhouse of the Big 12 this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really excited, Ethan, to see how this starts to take shape. You know, once the bracket and selection Sunday starts to approach, I think you make a really strong point that the conference tournaments, you know, they really pretend to March Madness success. I 
I think, you know, uh, I, I obviously can't speak for your own experience, but to me, when I think about conference tournaments, you know, kind of parlaying into uh, NCAA tournament success, I love to think about the 2011 UConn Huskies, man, with Kemba Walker. Yeah. They absolutely tore through that Big East tournament and obviously hitting that last second buzzer beater over Pitt. You know, that was a very cardiac Kemba, baby. Uh, in, you know, college basketball for me, that's part of what fueled my love for college basketball. So, I'm really curious, you know, once we get to this Big 12 tournament, if Baylor can actually be thwarted or if they're just going to end up steamrolling, you know, the West Virginia, Kansas and Oklahoma State's the world. Yeah, I like that you brought up Baylor, actually, because I think it's a much different dynamic. The fact that they did just lose, you know, because if you're going into this conference tournament with all these other great teams still undefeated, you have a massive target on your back. Now it kind of opens the door for everybody but it also keeps Baylor, you know, a little bit more even keel because it's like, okay, we've gotten that first loss out of the way. You know, we, we can still stand the test of time. And, and there are a lot of good teams that I think are, are kind of under the radar. Like, obviously, Kansas has been great. You know, they were the team that was able to do it. They, they've really been hitting their stride, I think, in the past month or so and, and sort of silenced all the doubters that think that they shouldn't be in the top 25. I mean, clearly now that's not the case. They're electric. Same thing with West Virginia and Oklahoma State. You know, West Virginia just just defensively, they're a team that can hang with anybody because of how how sound they are. And you know, it makes it makes you a tough beat. It's really a question with them, just if they're going to be able to hit shots or not. And then you sort of go down into the lower or not lower ranked teams because they're still all sick, but just the teams that are more in the teens of the of the top twenty five, like Oklahoma State, Texas, OU, and Texas Tech. West Virginia, obviously, very defensively sound team. That's what's going to keep them in a lot of close games. I mean, you can just look at you know their rap sheet from this year. They've been able to hang with virtually everybody just because they have the ability to keep games so close. But then lower down in in uh, some of the top teams in the Big Twelve, obviously, they're still all ranked top twenty in the nation, like Oklahoma State, Texas, OU, Texas Tech, all these teams have absolutely electric players, at least one or two, obviously leading the way is Cade Cunningham, projected first overall pick in the NBA draft. I mean, he's an absolutely electric player. But then all the other teams too, you know, this is a really, really, really good conference. I I mean, everybody's talking about the Big Ten right now as being the best conference in college basketball. And granted, they do have more top 10 ranked teams. However, I think top to bottom, the Big 12 is more competitive just because some of these teams are going to end up being like a six seed or seven seed in this conference tournament. And they're in the actual NCAA tournament. They're going to be like a three or four seed, you know, so I people should not sleep on this Big 12. I think it's going to be a really, really exciting tournament. You know, just any possible matchup that we could end up getting is going to be a good one, you know, given the fact that these a lot of these teams are rivals as it is. I mean, it'd be great to see Oklahoma play Oklahoma State again. You know, those games have already been electric this year. But, uh, yeah, I'm just super excited for this tournament. You know, I think this is the best, best Big 12 we've had in years, and I'm hoping that it pans out to give us a good conference tournament ahead of the actual NCAA tournament. Yeah, I'm I'm hyped, Ethan. And just, you know, you mentioned Cade Cunningham. And I think uh, we got to start taking note a little bit of, you know, who are these characters on these NCAA teams who, one, have proven that they're elite and have already gotten on the radar of NBA scouts and NBA analysts. And then, two, yeah. what are these 
player is going to do to up their draft stock. If you look at the 2021 NBA mock draft, of course, you know, mentioned Cunningham. He's, he's tore the top, but Texas tech, you know, they've got Shannon up there. They've got McClung up there. And then yep. you got Kansas. They've got some guys in here. You've got even some guys from freaking TCU, like just so such random yeah, TCU. That's a thing is big 12. Like the, even teams like TCU have kind of played spoiler. You're right. So with an ACC conference, that is, truly demonstrably weaker than it has been in years past. And with just the saturation yep. of talent we have here in the big 12, you know, all these lottery guys, such an opportunity here in 2021 for the big 12 conference to finally produce a national champion. But Ethan, of course, you know, you'd kind of mentioned there's another conference that's starting to become one of the heavy hitters here and thwart the ACC, the big 10, right? We got number two, Michigan, yeah. number four, Illinois, number five, Iowa. Uh, what are some kind of takeaways you've got in this conference at this moment? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's very similar to the Big 12 in that there are just a lot of really solid teams with NBA caliber talent. You know, you look at obviously the Michigans, the Illinois, the Iowas of this conference, like just looking at their rosters, they all have absolutely electric players top to bottom. I mean, Michigan is their number two in the nation for a reason between like livers in and of himself, just watching him make some of these shots with like three hands in his face. So like it, most people yeah. would get blocked and he just hits the three, nothing but net. It's incredible. Illinois, you know, obviously Io DeSumo's hurt right now. We'll see when they get, if and when they can get him back, but even without him, you know, they've still been playing really well. I'll get to them a little bit more in the wager wire uh, in a bit, but you know, they're still an electric team too right now, led by Kofi Coburn, Iowa, as much as I hate to admit it, Luca Garza is still a really yeah. good player. I hate Garza. Like he's my most like, <laughs> hated player, maybe in pro in uh, sports right now, at least in college sports, but obviously those are the top teams. Then below that, not even really a tier down, but just the teams that are a little bit more slept on. I think you have Ohio state, they're seventh in the nation. You have Purdue, they're 23rd, Maryland, 25th Rutgers, Michigan state, both of whom were ranked at, at one point or another this season. This is still a really, really strong division or strong conference. And, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see how some of these more middle of the pack teams fare against the big dogs, because they're, you know, these teams have been really, really good, but none of them are perfect. It's not like a Baylor or Gonzaga situation where you have a team with only one or two losses or none. I mean, Michigan's 18 and two, but they also didn't play a handful of games, you know, when they had that whole COVID right, break. Right. So, so who knows, you know, they could throw up a stinker, but just at the end of the day, I think it'll be really interesting because you have some teams that you wouldn't necessarily expect being there, you know, like up at the top of the big 10, like Illinois, you know, I mean, Ohio State's another one, Iowa, and then you have other teams like Michigan State, like Indiana, you know, that they're, they're lower down right now. I mean, it's, these are the teams that generally, especially with like, like legendary coaches like Tom Izzo, especially with Michigan State, those are the teams you look for and expect to be at the top of the Big Ten, and I think we're sort of seeing a changing in the guard in that sense, um, and, you know, I'm just interested to see what happens. Also, shout out to Wisconsin. I think they're the most overrated team in the nation. <laughs> let me correct myself. They're ranked 25, not Maryland. Uh, they're ranked 25 right now. I don't know how they should not be ranked. They, they're they 10 and 9 in the conference, which is just, like, yeah, it's a really good conference. But still, you know, you've lost, like, they've lost, like, four of their last five games or something. I, I don't think that they have what it takes to hang with some of the big dogs. But other teams might. And, 
you know, I think it really will be interesting, like I said, with the Big 12, just to see how some of these matchups pan out once we get to the actual tournament itself, because obviously they still have some games to play uh, finishing this week and this weekend. But yeah, you know, the Big 10, I think for good reason, has been named the best conference in college basketball this year, just because they have so many teams that aren't on the cusp of being elite, but actually are elite, you know, top 10 teams in the nation. And, And I'm really excited. I think it should be just as interesting and, you know, sort of intriguing to see how this pans out as it will be to watch March Madness itself, you know? Well, what, you know, I've kind of taken away as a really intriguing note here with, with the big 10 is that, you know, we compare big 12 and big 10 as the powerhouse conferences this season and talking about the big 12, you know, they've, they've got a lot of guys in the mix for the NBA draft and, and, you know, lottery picks guys that tons of NBA scouts are hyped on. But when you compare that to the big 10, they're, perhaps aren't as many individual names that really rise above the rest, you know, become really desired names. And I honestly, I relish that, you know, I love the fact that the big 10 this season has become a powerhouse because of the team units that it possesses. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you kind of mentioned Iowa and I think you got to talk about Iowa Hawkeyes a little bit more here because, you know, it's been just such a, so impressive the way that program has turned around. You know, when I think about Iowa, I think about when I, uh, went to the 2016 Rose Bowl, you know, they're, they've traditionally been a football school, they're tight end university, but this mm-hmm. season, you know, they're one of the more prolific offensive teams in the entire nation, right? They're number three in the nation in points per game. I was a top five team in three point percentage as well. And when it comes to March, right, the conference tournaments, the NCAA tournament, um, you know, bracketology, I was probably going to end up with a top four seed mm-hmm. offensive consistency and offensive accuracy becomes as important as ever. And, in a big 10 conference where the, like we're kind of talking about, the teams are really beaten up on each other. And there is some formidable defense, especially coming from teams like Michigan, you know, Michigan's the number two team in the nation. Uh, Iowa's offensive consistency is going to be even more important. And I'm really curious to see how Garza ends up playing because as much as you love to hate Garza, you know, he's one of the premier elite players in college basketball this season. He's a Naismith candidate if I've ever seen one. Yeah. I mean, I do hate Garza, but yeah, I mean the big 10, you know, these are the two conference tournaments that I think everybody will have their eyes on just because of how stacked they both are from top to bottom. But now let's turn to the third and final conference tournament and just conference in general. I want to look at that, you know, generally is at the top of college basketball and this year it just has been nowhere close. And that's the ACC, you know, I mean, teams like UNC Duke, they, they were ranked early in the season. They lost those rankings, Louisville, same thing. Uh, it's really been kind of a rough go for the ACC and, you know, they just have fallen off that, that pedestal as, you know, the annual best conference in college basketball. I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Theo, you know, looking at this conference as of right now, they only have three teams in the top 25 and that's number 11, Florida state, number 21, uh, UVA and number 22 VT, everybody else, Louisville, Georgia tech, Clemson, UNC, Cuse, Duke, they're unranked, you know, and kind of fighting for their tournament lives. Of course, teams like like Clemson, UNC, and, and Georgia Tech should make it. But Syracuse and Duke right now, I think, are on the outside looking in a lot of people's bracketologies. So, Theo, what do you what do you think about this conference, and what do you sort of see as some key themes uh, heading into the tournament itself? Well, I think one of the most prominent themes here is we're going to start to take shape of you know, the development of the bracketology, right? Like the top 25 rankings are going to kind of fall off in importance. And then we're going to start to kind of look at the rankings on kind of overall seating in the 64 team field. And if you just kind of look at what the projections are right now, just insane to think that Florida state, 
uh, might be the only ACC team with a top four seed and the big 12 and big 10 are going to be crowding that all that up. I mean, that's Ethan, that's just really shocking. Wild. Should really put into context just how extraordinary of a season this is that Duke, North Carolina, I mean, Virginia's having a good year. They'll be in the tournament, but I don't think they're the same Virginia we've seen in the past. Uh, Syracuse, you know, these aren't the kind of elite cut above teams as we've seen them in the past. And uh, I think that really yields to an opportunity in Florida State's favor, right? Florida State, you know, they're yeah. currently projected at a three seed, which is significantly higher than the rest of uh, than the rest of their conference. And I, I really would love to see, you know, another flipping of the script, a traditional football school coming mm-hmm. in and, and staking their claim in the landscape of college basketball. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I agree with everything you said about Florida State. I think, at least in my opinion, they're far and away the best team in this conference. I talked about it last week, obviously, picking them in the uh, in in the wager wire, even though they ended up losing. I still fit to UNC. I still think they're really just sound. They have a lot of athletic guys, you know, and they play a really solid game. But yeah, I mean, this is going to be a really interesting uh, conference tournament just because, you know, teams that are really not playing well, most notably Duke, Syracuse, UNC. I mean, you could throw NC State in there maybe just because they're still over 500 by one game in the conference. These teams are going to need this conference tournament if they want to make the actual NCAA tournament. It's not like years past where, you know, Duke, Syracuse, UNC, these are locks for, you know, a top five seed at the absolute worst, probably top three. Now they're fighting for their, for their March lives and they need to show out. Now I think UNC is kind of hitting their stride. You know, they've, they've played better of late. I mean, granted they still did lose their last game to Syracuse by two, but Syracuse is kind of in the same boat, but you know, it's, it's going to be interesting. I think that, a lot can change with this tournament specifically. And while the three top uh, 25 teams that they have in, in UVA VT and Florida state, they're obviously locks for the tournament. Everything else is kind of up for grabs. And, you know, I, people should really keep their eyes on this one just because there are some teams that are going to, it's going to be make or break. Like you got to make a run to at least the semis, if not the conference championship, if you want a chance to make it to the big dance and, I'm I'm cautiously excited for this because, you know, I, th- I think a lot of these teams are really underachieving and just frankly not that fun to watch, most notably Syracuse and Duke. Uh, that said, you know, it's March. You never know what's going to happen. It's March madness for a reason. And I think people should keep their eyes on the ACC and how it pans out because it, like you said, will have major seeding implications for the big dance and the NCAA tournament itself just to kind of wrap up the, this ACC back and forth we got here, you know, just Florida state, I think, uh, you know, like we're kind of talking about, this is an enormous opportunity for them and something really crucial, I think, uh, you know, is going to pretend to them succeeding come March and why I'm potentially going to like them in my brackets is that they've got two guys in the NBA draft lottery. And one of these guys, Scotty Barnes, one of the more prolific scorers in the nation, is currently the projected number seven seat or number seven pick in the NBA draft. And then, Another guy, MJ Walker, he's projected top 40 pick in the NBA draft yeah. out of Florida State. And these are two guys, um, you know, it's interesting. Scotty Barnes is a freshman. MJ Walker is a senior. And, uh, you know, their presence and their influence on especially the offense for Florida State, because if Florida State doesn't have their offense, then they will just have no fucking shot to really even win the ACC tournament, much less make a name for themselves in the NCAA tournament. If these guys mm-hmm. can stay on point for them, stay consistent, stay he- healthy, then I'm not betting against Florida State in the ACC. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I would agree with that a hundred percent. I just think that they by far are the most sound team on both ends of the court. But like I said, really interesting to see, and it is March for a reason or March madness for a reason. So anything could happen, but that's enough of a conference tournament breakdowns. Obviously we'll get into March madness talk much more next week. Once, you know, the seating really starts to shape up and, and we're into, into these actual conference tournaments, but for right now, let's turn to everybody's favorite segment, the wager wire, Theo, let's hear it. Let's place your first bet of the week. Why don't you? All right, let's get this shit going, Ethan. I am going to lead off with the classic PGA bet, bro. I I literally think I have a problem. Like I, I am a self-admitted degenerate when it comes to sports gambling but i've almost exclusively been taking pga wagers uh the past couple weeks just because i've been so intrigued and so struck by the action we've seen you know colin morikawa obviously um really setting you know setting himself apart on the weekend last week uh he was a big underdog and uh for this weekend i'm gonna take three different guys uh who i'm have high hopes for to contend at bay hill the arnold palmer invitational in orlando florida Going with Sam Burns, Tyrrell Hatton, and Jason Kokrak to do some damage here on this golf course. And I'm going to give a couple reasons why I like each of these guys. First, Sam Burns, you know, he has yet to break through in the PGA Tour, right? He doesn't have a win yet on his resume, but he was leading by five strokes after 36 holes at Riviera, one of the tougher golf courses on the tour. And it's really just a matter of weeks to me before he breaks through. You know, he's a 24-year-old who has finished top 10 multiple times in this 2020-2021 PGA Tour season. I love Sam Burns' game. And Tyrrell Hatton, you know, he's someone who's toward the top of the board. He won this tournament last year, and he's back in exceptional form this season. He's got two wins already the past five months, those two wins coming on the European Tour. And those are, you know, nothing to light. You know, European Tour has comparably talented feel to the PGA Tour, so love Mm -hmm. Hatton's prospects this week. And then perhaps my favorite play of the Arnold Palmer Invitational ticket going with Jason Kokrak. I locked in his bet to make the top 10. He's currently plus 400 to make the top 10. And uh, this is a guy who really flies under the radar in the greater landscape of the PGA, even though he already has a win on his resume in this season at the 2020 CJ Cup out there in Las Vegas against a very loaded field. Kokrak has also made a lot of cuts this season. And something that I really love about uh, Kokrak's game here is that he's an excellent putter, right? And putting is extremely crucial at a course as tough as Bay Hill where guys aren't going to be able to gain a lot of strokes off the tee. The strokes are going to be gained approaching the green and on the putting green. Kokrak is ninth in the PJ in shots gained putting. And he's got that confidence that he's already demonstrated that he can beat some of these heavy hitters in McElroy and DeChambeau based on his uh, past play. So give me Burns, Haddon, and Kokrak to do damage here at the old Arnold Palmer. All right. Love it. You know, love a little Bay Hill action, the old stomping grounds. We'll get to that later. But for my first pick, you know, I got to stick with the predictions I made earlier when we were doing the UFC talk. I just, I can't not. So I'll give you a parlay of the three title fights. I'm going to go with Aljamain Sterling for the first one, Amanda Nunes for the second and Israel Adesanya for the third. I mean, you know, not like crazy just because they're all well Adesanya and Nunes are both favored in Sterling that that's a pick'em fight but still you know there probably wouldn't even be really any value in that in that parlay it'd be pretty rough but I'll give you a quick reason for why for all three Adesanya just because you know I think his confidence supersedes him I think he's he's at the highest level he could possibly be and I really just can't envision him losing this fight of course I'll probably be 
you know, complaining about the fact that he did come come next week. But for right now, I just I love him too much not to ride with him. Amanda Nunes, pretty self-explanatory. She is the greatest of all time for a reason, and she won't lose. That's the biggest lock I've ever put in into this <laughs> wager wire. And then Aljamain Sterling, A, because I think his his style and, and sort of wrestling as his forte will really, you know, bode well for him against against a guy that, uh, you know, in, in Piotr Jan, he's much more of a stand-up boxing type fighter. I think that makes uh, Aljamain Sterling really tough to defend against too, even though uh, Jan's takedown defense is not bad. But also because he's a Morrisville State guy, shout out to Corral. How could I not ride with him? So give me those three, Adesanya, Nunes, and Sterling in a parlay, title fights UFC 259. I love that shit, man. Also, um, I'm not sure if you did the calculations yet, but if you do parlay those three, it's giving you about plus 180 odds just, just on that uh, package. <laughs> That's yeah. It's because Nunez kills it. Cause she's <laughs> minus 1200. Otherwise yeah. it would probably be pretty decent. Just totally weighs down the odds. Uh, yeah. I do like it though. Anyways, right. my second wager of this week. Um, I think we've established a pretty, a pretty concrete theme here on hot take time machine of taking overly ambitious, perhaps irresponsible futures, just, way way too far in advance and why not continue that trend right now man i'm going to take with my second wager the phoenix suns to win the western conference in the nba at plus 1100 11 to 1 odds this is quite steep and quite aggressive but i'm gonna give you some pretty what i think strong reasons uh to take this long shot at this time uh first of all it's my personal tradition of taking an underdog dark horse in the west because i'm a Laker hater. I'm a Clipper skeptic and I've got my team in the East already with the Celtics. So why not get behind one West dark horse every season? And this is a team that frankly, how could you root against them? You know, I love everything about this team. They're only one of two teams in the NBA who are in the top 10 of offensive and defensive efficiency. They're 15 and three in the last 18 games with multiple comebacks. Yep. You know, call that recency bias, but I, you know, these are wins over impressive, strong teams, the Nets, the Lakers, uh, you know, Devin Booker, you can't look past a guy like that, just what he's meant to this team, especially offensively. And I think this man is about to go off after being initially snubbed for the all-star roster in the first kind of uh, publication of who is on that list. Mm. Uh, He's joining CP3 now. He's uh, been selected as an all-star reserve since uh, Davis is not going to be playing. And these two guards, they're going to be on a mission coming in later uh, this season. Uh, It's a big fade for the Lakers and Clippers for me. Uh, And just the ability of these two stars to really thwart, you know, those kind of heavy hitter favorites that have really set themselves apart, at least in the book. Um, Of course, I'm biased because I I detest the Lakers. But, you know, just objectively, I I don't think this is going to be their season. You know, I think last season there was such magic, such championship aura, uh, you know, powering them all the way through the regular season and then sustaining them through the break and then into the bubble, especially that Anthony Davis at 100 percent. You know, I just think they're very fallible team. And I think. For the Clippers, you know, they need one more year with this entire team. And then I think it's really their time to make a championship case. And finally, you know, the Suns, their fourth best record in the ABA right now. Okay. And like, we can't take that lightly. Their records are on par with the Clippers and Lakers at this point in time. They got a deep roster, very comparable talent production. Give me the Phoenix Suns to win the West. Ethan, book that shit. Can't wait to uh, bring back this audio in a few months. All right. Yeah. Look, I hope it happens. I mean, 
putting the hot take in hot take time machine that's for <laughs> sure uh all right for my second pick i'm going with number 17 oklahoma state sticking with the big 12 i'm taking whatever their spread ends up being because the game's not till saturday and college basketball doesn't release spreads until the day prior but i'm taking whatever their spread is they will be visiting number six west virginia and here's why i'll be the first to admit that i was initially at the beginning of the season not a Cade cunningham supporter believer I kind of just didn't really get the hype, but watching his 40 point game and that clutch overtime performance uh, in their win against Oklahoma, like a week and a half ago, I, I was fully sold and I am still fully sold, you know, Oklahoma state, they just continue to get better and better. I think every week. And they honestly, they've fared pretty damn well against their ranked big 12 opponents. They have went two wins or they have wins against OU twice when they were ranked number seven and number 16. They have wins against Texas tech twice when they were ranked number 13 and number 18. They have a win against number six, Texas. They have a win against number six, Kansas and their losses to ranked teams they lost by three to number 14 west virginia last time that's a really close game and then yeah. they lost by three to number 11 texas that's a really close game you know i think they just have really shown up in a big way against all these you know major opponents that you'd expect to kind of blow out a team like oklahoma state and they've just continued to prove time and again that they're legit you know and and it's I think all just comes from Cade Cunningham and his ability to put the ball in the basket. And on the flip side with West Virginia, while they still are obviously the number six team in the country for good reason, because of, you know, that defensive uh, sort of edge that they have and the ability to keep it, keep it tight against anybody that they play. Uh, you know, I think Oklahoma state, I, I think they're going to have some, some decent, uh, value with this spread here and i think just with the way that cade cunningham has been playing how red hot they've been the past couple weeks and maybe even the past month or so i think it's really tough to pick against oklahoma state so you know there there's going to be some good value here even if they lose to baylor tonight there will be even an added bonus for them to want to come back and you know prove that they are legit by beating west virginia so give me oklahoma state with their spread on saturday against west virginia okay Love, uh, love the Cowboys lay. I mean, you you can't bet against Cunningham. He is he is a trend. He's a monster. I thought he was like shitty at first, but I was like, okay, yeah. like this guy's really good. <laughs> he's the name to know, especially for the NBA. Yeah. Uh, all right, my last wager of this week. I'm also taking a conference tournament right here. I am going to focus on uh, the SEC here a little bit because we talked about the the Big Twelve and uh, Big Ten at length and. One team I'm really looking toward in the SEC to potentially win the conference tournament with favorable odds right now is the Tennessee Volunteers. Perhaps a team uh, off the beaten path for most people there. SEC tournament odds are currently set at plus 460, and I think these are way, way deflated odds for a team that, you know, they're not the Tennessee Volunteers perhaps that we saw in 2019, the, the number two seed that beat our Colgate Raiders Ugh. in the March Madness tournament. Still salty over that. Ugh. But I think at plus 460, these are incredibly favorable odds for a team that's number eight in the nation in shot quality and just hasn't been shown that same kind of love in the top 10 coaches poll or AP poll. They're also fourth in the nation in defensive shot quality. So they're forcing bad shots on teams and that's really helped them. Uh, amplify their out-of-conference record to 7-0, and right? They've only lost games within conference, and I think, you know, that bodes really well for this team to really do some damage here come March. And, you know, once this month comes around and the games really take on different meaning, the top 25 begins to wear down in terms of importance and influence in favor of the bracket. 
Uh, they're projected the number seven seed right now. And I really think they could thwart, you know, a number two team, a number two Houston, you know, a, a high seeded mid-major. Uh, I'm buying low on this volunteers team that's got way more experience than Alabama and Arkansas, two teams that are really having uh, special, prolific, unique seasons here in the SEC to, like I said, you know, traditional football powerhouses. And uh, one kind of um, another feather in the cap here for, for the University of Tennessee is uh, the coach and their two best players, right? Start with the coach. Rick Barnes has been with this team since 2015, so he knows the deal. He's been to a bunch of tournaments, and he was with Texas for a while before that, so he's got right. the experience to really, uh, you know, overcome uh, Arkansas and Alabama in the conference tournament. Then two guys who are potential NBA studs, Eves Pons and Jane Springer. They've got an opportunity to elevate their NBA draft lottery position and do some damage and prove why they are worthy of being watched uh, by NBA scouts and uh, taking note as some of the better young basketball players in the nation. So uh, long shot, but I'm liking these odds, Tennessee to win the SEC tournament at plus 460. All right. I mean, again, I kind of put in the hot take and hot take time machine, right? But you know what? what it's all right. For. I like that. You got to risk it for the biscuits sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, there you go. And look, they haven't been hot recently, but they were playing at a pretty high level about a month and a half ago. So yeah. Right. All right, for my third and final pick, I'm also going with the future for a conference tournament. Sticking with the Big Ten, you know, I've been riding with Illinois all season. I kind of can't deviate from that now, especially with the way they've been playing lately. So Illinois plus 400 to win the Big Ten. You know, I just think that they've weathered the storm, everything that's been thrown at them, whether it's scheduling issues, whether it's, you know, Io DeSumo getting hurt and breaking his nose in that Michigan State game. Oh. Uh, they've still really just played as about as well as you could ask. They have wins over Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, Purdue. The only team that the only team that they've yet to beat is Ohio State, but they play them this Saturday at four o'clock. So that could be a very telling game. Regardless, though, I think that even without the Sumu, who's a projected lottery pick, they've been electric, led by, of course, Kofi Coburn. I mean, he's basically Shaq Jr. with the way that he <laughs> plays and just dominates the paint. And if they can get the Sumu back, which, you know, there's been rumblings. I mean, that he's considered day-to-day -day as of now. There's been talk that he could be back for the conference tournament wearing a face mask. You, you know, when all these guys, especially in the NBA, you look at some of these great players that wear masks and have these incredible games, who knows if that's in the cards for Desumu. But regardless, I really like the value with the plus 400. You know, I think Illinois has proven that they can be the best team in the Big Ten if they want to. And it's really all in their hands, I think. And adding uh, Io back into that already stacked roster would just be you know, the icing on the cake for them. I, I really like Illinois. It's just the way that they've turned that program around to be one of the best in the country. So give me them plus 400 to win the Big Ten. Another kind of hot take, but, I, but I've got some confidence in it. So lock it in. Hey, man, I think we we built the wager wire segment for plus 400 uh, long shot hot takes, man. Yeah, probably, because it's just it's just a long shot enough to include it without being like, OK, it's not going to happen. Exactly. But it's still yeah, you know, there's still some value there. So, yeah, 100 percent. I kind of love it. Speaking of long shots, might as well just switch gears here to our next segment, going to pure cap, no cap. Uh, going to talk about someone who. Uh, you know, made a decision to go with a team that, you know, we weren't really expecting. And the pure cap, no cap here is J.J. Watt to the Cardinals. It was a good move for both sides. The Cardinals were way long shots to get Watt, uh, you know, in favor of other teams, perhaps like the Steelers and the Packers. But, mm -hmm. hey, Ethan, you know, sometimes sometimes long odds end up, end up being the way to go here. And if you bet on J.J. Watt going to the Cardinals, 
for like the fucking five people who probably did that in the world, yeah. but you're a very happy uh, camper right now. But anyways, uh, pure cap, no cap, Ethan, JJ Watt to the Cardinals. Good move. Two years, 31 million. Um, okay. So I'll say, I think it's a good move for the Cardinals. So I'll say no cap in that regard. You know, I think it never hurts to get a generational player on defense, no matter how old he is. I mean, it's two years, 31 million, 23 million guaranteed barring some sort of injury, but he still has proven that he can play at a high level and be just a game record that we've known him to be for his entire career. So, yeah, I think it's a great move for the Cardinals to bring him in. I mean, defense and especially the pass rush was a real issue for them last year. And with the offensive weapons that they currently possess, I mean, i.e. Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins, you know, you got to try to bolster that defense just to contend in an already really difficult NFC West. But then on the flip side, was it a good move for J.J. Watt? (sighs) I'm not sold just yet. You know, I think the Cardinals are one of the weirdest teams in (laughs) in general just because they kind of imploded last year especially in a year that everybody expected them to make this big leap and now you already have an NFC West that was good and only going to get better I mean you add Stafford in with the Rams the 49ers are going to get everybody back and be back you know to that solid game that they play and as of right now Russell Wilson is still a Seahawk which makes them dangerous in and of itself so J.J. Watt talked about, and there was all this, you know, these murmurs of, oh, he wants to go to a Super Bowl contender. He wants to try to actually win something. I don't think the Cardinals are the answer. I think he, he there could have been plenty of other teams. I'm not even saying the Steelers because I really didn't want him. I think it's just not worth it to pay a guy that much money if you already have a solid defense. But, you know, I think there are a lot of other teams that he could have chosen to sign with and it would have maybe been better move in terms of you know like realistic Super Bowl aspirations of course I could eat my words you never know the Cardinals maybe they'll go deep into the playoffs it's still yet to be seen because it's only March but for right now I'll say no cap it was good for the Cardinals and slightly pure cap it was good move for JJ watches because he's going to get paid wherever he goes money's not an issue it's really just a question of what's the situation you're getting yourself into and the Cardinals quite frankly I think are in kind of a disaster situation and only going to get worse unless they can really turn it around with some young players which JJ Watt is not no matter how great he is so that's where I stand on it but what do you think Theo? Yeah, so I, I, I'm going to agree with you and say that it's it's no cap, that it's a good move for the Cardinals. But I'm also going to disagree with you in the sense that I think it's no cap, a great move for J.J. Watt, actually. Okay. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, just, just the concept of youth with the Cardinals, right? Because they've got Kyler Murray, who obviously, you know, could be a transcendent kind of talent in the NFL. I think he's still in development, still a very young guy. But mm-hmm. I think something we got to emphasize here with the Arizona Cardinals on defense specifically, because JJ, that's where J.J. Watt's going to factor in immediately, is that, They've got some sensationally talented young guys. I mean, Buda Baker is 24 years old. He was a first-team AP All-Pro. Hassan Reddick is one of the most underrated pass rushers in the entire NFL. Had 12 and a half sacks this season for Arizona. Well, yeah, the issue with Reddick, though, is that he's an incoming free agent. So might this have hurt their chances to get him? <laughs> but, I don't, you know, I don't know about that, man. I think, right, of course, right now is speculation. But I just right. think, you know, one, uh, the leadership factor with J.J. Watt, right? Like Mm -hmm. his presence in itself is impactful in the locker room, regardless if he's stuffing the stat sheet or not, you know, regardless if he's, you know, the bloodied, battered, you know, gladiator J.J. Watt. We saw the, you know, early in 2010s, but a lot of the Mm -hmm. reason that, you know, he ended up taking on this, this warrior mentality, this persona for the Texans was 
because the onus was almost exclusively on him to be the defensive stalwart for years over there in NRT Stadium. Right. Whereas this season, I think the presence of, of obviously, you know, if, if Hassan Reddick comes back, you know, that makes a big difference. But assuming he does come back for the moment, uh, you know, his presence and his experience then combined with, you know, the lack of necessity for him to pull all this weight on defense for the Cardinals and, and really help guys like Simmons and Reddick and Baker mature and come into their own as elite guys in the NFL because they're still so young. You know, I think that's really significant for the Cardinals and having that mm-hmm. kind of leadership on the defensive end with uh, Watt and then on the offensive end with Hopkins and Fitzgerald. I think Fitzgerald is retiring, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know, honestly. Well, and yeah, it seems so like nobody know knows if they're retiring. Yeah. <laughs> Fitzgerald or not, I mean, J.J. Watt is a Hall of Fame caliber player who mm-hmm. is just in the twilight of his prime, right? Like, he's not washed up in any capacity yet. He was a first-team All-Pro in 2018. That wasn't that long ago. He played all mm-hmm. 16 games in 2020. He had seven pass defenses. Of course, he didn't have the ridiculous uh, sack numbers that he had had in the past, but still 14 tackles for losses and – you know, I think that Watt could fit in really well in the system and, you know, take the kind of the onus of the defensive strategy development off of Cliff Kingsbury and really allow Kingsbury to cook up some magic with uh, Murray and Hopkins on the offensive end. So uh, no cap. I, th- I think this could could be the move of the offseason in the NFL. The Cardinals acquire. Oh, wow. All right. All right. Interesting. We'll agree to disagree. Of course, it's all yet to be seen because I'm sure JJ Watt is, isn't even in Arizona yet, but uh, <laughs> let's keep it rolling right now from pure cap, no cap into the ice of the week. You know, there's, it's always a little difficult to find stuff for this just because we're in that lull state of sports. You know, there's not a ton going on other than regular season stuff in the NBA and college basketball in the NHL, but something popped up that was kind of weird and a little interesting. Yeah. Theo, when he, when he, uh, give it to us all right so this is um this is an unusual one for we got for ice of the week uh we're icing albert pujols this week and before we before we get into the criticism just want to say first and foremost albert pujols is a top five player to ever lace it up in major league baseball and one of the more inspiring and impressive athletes i think we've ever seen in all of major league baseball and he deserves that i'd say top 10 but agree to disagree i Anyways, he deserves the credit and he deserves a flower, especially with those two World Series rings. But the reason we're icing him here today is that we could be working with a falsified age situation here. Mm-hmm. Albert Pools is currently listed at 41 years old, but that could be false. Apparently, there are rumblings within MLB front offices and rumblings that are, you know, ending up being true in a lot of in a lot of people's uh, observation that. He's 44 years old in reality. Albert Pujols is not the age he says he is and not the age that his contract currently denotes that enormous contract he signed with the Angels 10 years, $240 million, uh, after 2011. So, you know, this isn't, this isn't necessarily the most uh, competitively significant, um, you know, fact that we're pointing out here, but it's, it's ice-worthy. A guy who, you know, is, is staking his claim as one of the best in Major League Baseball in the history of the game, we've just been working with a falsified age this whole time. Yeah, it's just like kind of absurd because again, like like you were saying, it doesn't really change anything about his own stats. Like he's still like managed to have all these mind-boggling stats over the course of his career. Like that doesn't really have an impact. But it's just weird because like I was reading about it and it's like, okay, the Angels when they signed him, like weren't sure if his age was correct or not and just didn't really like 
really care. They just signed him regardless. And I just don't understand how this could happen in the 21st century. Like, <laughs> I mean, how could you just say you're one age and you're actually three <laughs> years older than that? That means that when he was a rookie, like he, he was his rookie year, he was supposed to be 21. He was actually 24. I, I, I mean, that what? Like, how is that? How is that allowed? I don't know. It's just Albert Pujols and all these MLB execs should be iced for this just because it seems like a really weird thing for one of the greatest players of and one of the greatest hitters of all time. It seems like a weird thing to just have slipped through the cracks. You know, oh, he's casually three years older than what he initially said he is. But regardless, just definitely ice worthy for someone in a really, really weird thing to be coming out of the MLB right now. But, you know, that's the only thing really going on other than spring training, right? So it's got to – you got to keep the MLB fans interested with something. Yeah, and just mention one more thing before before we get to our last segment with the time machine, that uh, Pools, when he came into Major League Baseball in 2001, you know, it, it wasn't as simple, you know, uh, importing, you know, Dominican talent into Major League Baseball. And uh, fraud has – you know, not not to get controversial, but there have been a couple instances of fraud um, among players coming in his generation from the Dominican Republic coming into Major League Baseball in the early 2000s. Uh, of course, you got Wandy Rodriguez famously falsified yeah. his age. Uh, you know, he was three years older than people believed he was. And Miguel Tejada, another guy who was an MVP in the league, he is another person who falsified his age. So, uh, you know, this this isn't to say that it's a, you know, a systematic problem, but there definitely is a trend and it shouldn't come as a stark surprise to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I mean, just kind of absurd. It definitely, something needs to be done about it just for the benefit of everybody, because I don't think it ultimately is going to help out if, Oh, at the end of a great player's career, they're actually three years older than what everyone believed, but enough of that. We'll give Pujols the benefit of the doubt right now. You know, he still hadn't, in his having an electric career, I guess he just retired, but he's, he's going to just, maybe this at the end of the season. He hasn't. Right. It. Yeah. Yeah. He's still just like an incredible player. I mean, he's like the active leader in so many different hitting yeah. stats. <laughs> Regardless of what his age is, you can't make that stuff up, but uh, that's enough of ice of the week. Let's roll into our last and namesake segment, the time machine. Theo, you got anything good for us this week as we step into the old hot take time machine? Ethan, you know I'm packing that time machine heat, baby. And one <laughs> one thing I really wanted to harken back to on this episode, and you know we ha- we haven't talked about this yet. You know I, I want to give some appreciation to Tiger Woods, um, big cat, yes, greatest sir. greatest ever play the game of golf. And of course, you know our prayers are with him and his family. You know we're really hoping for the best that he can have a speedy and full recovery uh, to mm-hmm. hopefully see him on the golf course at some point again in his career. Um, and I don't think we give him his flowers enough and really appreciate what he's done for the game. Uh, and the moment I wanted to kind of look back to right now and get a little nostalgic for is Tiger's win at the 2009 Arnold Palmer Invitational and um, picking up on this one because Arnold Palmer Invitational is this weekend. So why not harken back to one 12 years ago, Tiger's most yeah. recent title at this event. Um, you know, this was punctuated by one of the most electric PGA moments I've ever seen and honestly sparked some of my love for watching golf on a Sunday, you know, an exciting uh, final round, especially when Tiger's in the mix. Um, it was his ninth Arnold Palmer Invitational title. It's the most titles he has on any tour event, which is just absolutely insane. Yep. He's tied for the lead at four under, heading into 18. 
and nails a 15-foot birdie putt to clinch the W, an absolutely electric soundbite. Uh, Ethan, I mean, Bay Hill, of course, that's very tough that you've actually had experience playing on. Uh, what do you think this particular win meant for Tiger in the context of the actual golf? Because, you know, I haven't been in this course and you have, period, so... Yeah, well, so I've never actually played there, but I've walked it many times. We used to go there uh, every year for spring training. We Like my team for golf in high school, we'd get day passes on either the Thursday, Friday rounds or even a practice round. And we'd get to just, you know, run wild and see this course. I mean, first and foremost, I think it's one of the most underrated tournaments on the schedule every year because you always have massive names there, big galleries. You know, it's a beautiful course. Um, and there's always guys that are really, really notable winning. Of course, you know, you look at Tiger and just his continued excellence uh, at Bay Hill. But yeah, I mean, you when you go there, there's sort of an air about it, too. There's just so much history involved. Obviously, Arnold Palmer Invitational for a reason. You know, Arnold Palmer, up until he passed away, uh, was very instrumental in that tournament. And then you have a ton of different big names um, that have fared very well, like guys like Rory McIlroy, for example. I mean, of course, Tiger, too. But you know, the Bay Hill and the Arnold Palmer Invitational is just always holds a very special place in my heart because I've been there so many times and been able to have very, you know, personal interactions with, you know, me and my teammates and, and pro golfers. I mean, most notably, just a quick anecdote here during a practice round, I think my sophomore year of high school or maybe junior year, uh, we were able to like pull Ernie Els aside and just talk to him for a little oh. bit. You know, the big easy, it was pretty cool. He's a massive guy. First of all, he's like six, five. So just memories like that. I'll always have a, a soft spot in my heart for Bay Hill. And uh, you know, looking back on some of Tiger's most electric moments there, you really can't discount how, how much he dominated that course. And it's really just an exemplification of Tiger's excellence throughout the 2000s and early 2010s, you know, I mean, Bay Hill, of course, but everywhere else, it's just his ability to be as clutch as he was, I think is second to none. And it's clear that he, even though he doesn't have the same amount of major victories as a Jack Nicholas, I mean, he's dealt with his own problems, right. you know, on and off the course, you know, injuries or whatever is going on in his personal life. But regardless, he was one of the most dominant and electric athletes I think we've ever had the privilege to watch. And uh, Bay Hill is just one of the perfect examples of that. You know, I'm really excited to watch this weekend. Of course, we've got a lot of other big sporting events this weekend, so it'll probably only be a Sunday round watch for right. me. But, you know, it, it, it always bodes well when you have just a great field and you're going to play the Arnold Palmer Invitational because, you know, something exciting is going to happen, whether it's a hole out from a bunker, whether it's guys making 50 footers to save birdie or par or whatever. It's just an electric place to play and an electric place to watch golf as an observer as well. Yeah. And one more thing on this. It was in 2009, his his win at uh, Bay Hill Tiger was his 66th. PGA tour victory in 2009. Like, are you yeah, kidding me? That's a lot. That's absurd. He's, like he's Dustin dominant. Johnson has 24 right now and he's, and he's already, you know, a firmly golf hall of fame and his reputation established. Just insane. You know, when you put into context, just tiger's dominance, especially oh, yeah. in the two, that was the point when everyone was like afraid to play. It was just like, who, who's yeah. going to like come in second every week. He was winning at a 30% clip. Yeah. It's stupid. <laughs> So dumb. So um, just just to say thank you, Tiger, for uh, giving all you have to the game. Uh, we don't appreciate you enough. Hoping for a speedy recovery. And yes. I think that's as good a point as any to wrap this one up, even. Yeah, no doubt. This was uh, yet another hoss of an episode, as most of them are these days. But, you know, we got to give the people what they want. So uh, 
Yeah, everybody, you know, like I've been saying throughout the entire time, we got a packed weekend and, and, you know, end of the week of sports. And we'll look forward to talking to you guys again next week about some college basketball. Oh, yeah, I can't wait to get this March Madness going. Excited to have uh, a special guest on. We'll leave that a mystery for now. But oh, yeah, uh, we'll see you guys next week. Peace. Peace. Peace.